Welcome to Islam for Christians. This is episode 118, the Quran, Surah 87, Al-Allah, the Most High. Glorify the name of your Lord, the Most High, who created the perfectly fashioned all, and who ordained precisely and inspired accordingly, and who brings forth green pasture and reduces it to withered chaff. We will have you recite the Quran, O Prophet, so you will not forget any of it, unless God wills otherwise. He surely knows what is open and what is hidden. We will facilitate for you the way of ease, so always remind with the Quran, even if the reminder is beneficial only to some. Those in awe of God will be mindful of it, but it will be shunned by the most wretched, who will burn in the greatest fire where they will not be able to live or die. Successful indeed are those who purify themselves, remember the name of their Lord, and pray. But you deniers only prefer the life of this world, even though the hereafter is far better and more lasting. This is certainly mentioned in the earlier scriptures, the scriptures of Abraham and Moses. And now the Arabic as recited by Saad El-Ghamdi. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Sabbih isma rabbika al-a'la al-ladhi khalaqa fasawwa wal-ladhi qaddara fahada wal-ladhi abraja al-mab'a faja'alahu uta'an ahwa. Quite often, there is some ambiguity, some mystery in the Quran. In many ways. Of course, I mean, throughout the Quran, but I want to kind of hone in on one specific one here in Surah 87. And that is the question of the audience. Who is being addressed? And in particular, there is this blurring of the line between message and messenger. Like in this Surah, who is this addressed to? Is this a message for Muhammad? Or is it a message for everyone? And really, like most religious questions, the answer is probably multi-tiered. As we used to joke in the seminary, the answer to every single question is yes and no, and sometimes Jesus. So 
In this Sora, we begin with words about God, who is not called Allah here uh, in the very first line, but Rabika, your Lord. Now, there are many ways to say Lord or God or Master. And this particular one, the root RBB, means someone who guards from harm, sustains, develops. It's kind of like a parent. The verb form means to be a master, but also to raise a child. But it's not the same as parent, exactly. The word for stepfather or stepmother comes from this verb, for example, to give you an idea of the relationship being shown here. But that's not really what we're focusing on. It's the possessive pronoun here, rabika. The ka part of that just means your. But who is your? Your master, your teacher, or to use a similar Hebrew word, rabbi. We know who the rabbi is. It's God. But is this God talking to Muhammad? Or is God talking to everyone? For all time. Now, unsurprisingly, the answer is probably both. At least I think so. But different commentators take various sides of that. Now, some will say, of course it refers to Muhammad. Many go as far as to put his name in parentheses right next to the text. Of course, his name is not in the Arabic, but many seem to think it's implied. But on the other hand, there are others who actually say, no, this is clearly referring to mankind as a whole. And their reason is interesting, and it brings up a whole other topic of Quranic study we need to get to, something that is much larger than this Quranic passage. Now, that is the idea of abrogation. It's super common, but not all Muslims think this is a good idea. It's abrogation, A-B-R-O-G-A-T-I-O-N. And we'll get to that soon. It's, it's a very important concept. But first, let's look at the lines in question. These are verses 6 to 7, is what we're going to go over here. I'll use the Yusuf Ali translation for this, because it's a little more neutral when it comes to this subject. By degrees shall we teach thee to declare the message, so thou shalt not forget, except as Allah wills, for he knoweth what is manifest and what is hidden. So you shall not forget, except as Allah wills. And if you wonder what that means, you are not alone. Why on earth would God will you to forget something? And is he telling Muhammad to forget something? Or is he telling the people to forget something? And the answers to these questions will often fall on how you feel about the concept of abrogation. And for proponents of abrogation, this is the first Quranic mention of what they claim is that concept, or the theological justification for what would become this concept of abrogation. And that's why I'm talking about that right now. It just, it seems like a good time to introduce this, because it will come up later. It usually pertains to matters of law and all that. Um, this is an early Meccan surah, as most so far have been, so things just aren't 
complex enough for abrogation yet, but we have it here. So abrogation, nask in Arabic. That's N-A-S-K-H if you want to look it up. I just really cannot pronounce that word with any competence. This is the idea that one Quranic verse revealed at a later time can cancel out an earlier one. The idea here is to fix alleged contradictions in the text, and it has been a part of Islamic jurisprudence and theology for a very long time. Now, it has been questioned then and now, but especially now, by more modern scholars, but it's still quite common. Uh, for example, same passage. This is the Mustava Kitab translation, which is actually what I had read in the beginning. We will have you recite the Quran, O Prophet, so you will not forget any of it, unless other, <laughs> unless Allah wills otherwise. Then you have a footnote. He surely knows what is open and what is hidden. And the footnote says, meaning. We will have you memorize the revelations and apply the rulings contained in them, unless one ruling is replaced by another. This is the idea that the Quran is revealed gradually, so it needs to be understood that way. If two verses seem to contradict or soften each other, you should go with the later one. Now, here's a classic example the eventual prohibition of alcohol. Now, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but basically the earliest verse says, alcohol and gambling can be good sometimes, but almost never. It's almost always bad. And then the next one is, don't drink while you're praying, please. And then eventually it was just a blanket ban. No drinking at all. Now, can you guess which one defines Islamic law? So, sometimes that can make a lot of sense. After all, the Word of God cannot contradict itself, because really, if that's the case, the entire religion collapses. But the more modern critics, and many over the years who were in the minority, they would say God's Word is perfect. It's perfect as a whole. So it's kind of, well, insane to slice out parts of it. So what to do with alleged contradictions from this point of view? Well, factor the whole into the interpretation. For example, in the verse we have here, it appears that God is telling Muhammad that he should forget what God asks him to forget. So start with the basis that it cannot possibly refer to the Quran itself. You would not want to forget that. That's impossible because the Quran is perfect. So it's not something you're going to change because forgetting would be basically like changing it. So, given that, logically, God must be talking to all of mankind rather than just to Muhammad. And then that verse actually makes sense. The idea, born of theological logic, is that the Quran would never contradict itself. And the non-abrogation crowd would also point out that 
this whole process of abrogation can be prone to abuse. And the best example of this is the so-called sword verse, used as an excuse by militants pretty much since Muhammad died. Violent people would say, hey, forget all that stuff about moderation and non-aggression and peace and defense and all that. This verse, Surah 9, verse 5, that came later. So actually, this is what counts. Now that verse says, Then, when the sacred months have passed, slay the idolaters wherever you find them, and take them captive, and besiege them, and prepare for them each ambush. But if they repent and establish worship and pay the poor due, then leave their way free. Allah is forgiving and merciful. So, in the view of some, that verse, particularly the beginning part of that verse, the more violent part of it, that abrogates the more peaceful ones. Now, you can see the problem there. I should warn you, though, well, while this line of thought is extremely popular with terrorists, it is not a position taken by any intellectual heavyweights of the Muslim world. You'd have a hard time finding a Muslim scholar of any renown who believes that particular example makes sense. Well, you could, but it would be a minority opinion. It's an extreme version. But this is kind of an extreme example of the abrogation critique and the type of thing that they're worried about. So, abrogation versus non-abrogation. I can really see both sides there. But if I had a vote, you know, not being a Muslim, I don't really have a vote, but if I did, I would probably side with the modernists in this. Which is kind of an unusual thing for me. You know, usually in my eyes, many modernists when it comes to theology, they just offer far far less than their classical counterparts. Uh, particularly those who are far more interested in popular social trends than discerning what God actually wants us to do. But on this occasion, the modern scholars make a very good point, and without apology. As Muhammad Assad states in his commentary, not in this surah, but a different one, in short, the doctrine of abrogation has no basis whatsoever in historical fact, and it must be rejected. And I should point out, there is a middle ground too. There are some who kind of try to split the baby. Uh, Yusuf Ali, for example, I read that part, that, uh, his version of this earlier. He emphasizes that the Quran is revealed gradually but that this verse makes no reference to the concept of abrogation, only to the fact that people in general, not Muhammad, tend to forget things over time. And that's pretty solid stuff too. And in this surah, that kind of comes full circle, this idea of forgetfulness. So you have the last two lines. They probably caught your attention. The last two lines are basically saying that all these things the Surah is talking about 
these things were in the books of Abraham and Moses. So, do we take that literally? I've never heard of the book of Abraham, and only Abraham and Moses are important? Some actually make that argument, noting that the gospel is not mentioned. But really, let's apply some logic to this. <laughs> if the gospel is not included, then neither are David and Elijah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all the rest. Now really, does that make sense in light of all the other things the Quran is saying about past messengers? No, it doesn't. Now, it's a good thing this was an early surah <laughs> from some perspectives. Imagine what would have happened if this was at the end. By some interpretations, we then have to dismiss all mentions of all the other prophets in the Quran, including Jesus. But no, that does not make sense. These are clearly just examples. You know, use a little common sense. Whether Abraham wrote anything or not, it's just to mention, hey, here's two prophets from before you. The point is the unity of the message and using some common sense. Now, incidentally, that's the theme of this Sora in so many ways. Unity and order. The rhyme scheme even captures it, because this Sora never breaks its single rhyme scheme over 19 lines, despite having a few subjects. But they're all one. One God. One message revealed again and again over time. And the emphasized part of that message in this surah is the afterlife. As it says in the end, this message has been spoken by every prophet. Which is an interesting take from a historical perspective, because the, the Christian-slash-Islamic take on the afterlife wasn't very clearly attested to by either Abraham or Moses. There were hints if you look back, but in no way was this stated explicitly the way Jesus or Muhammad stated it. There was a reason the Sadducees existed after all. This was a hot debate 2,000 years ago, whether the afterlife was real. And the Sadducees took the position that there is no afterlife. Now this Sora would have been a very good one for them to hear. But the Quran says, obviously, that the afterlife does exist, and it emphasizes it just as much as the gospel does. There's the primacy of the afterlife, and a warning to people not to overlook it. And this surah also offers a very key concept here as well when it comes to the afterlife. Not just about hell, but about something else. You know, the Quran is not short on descriptors of hell fire and burning and all that. But there is a rather profound statement made in this surah that goes beyond that. You know, here, like I said, there's all the standard business of fire, and but it also says about the fires of hell, wherein he will neither live nor die. <laughs> I just did that backwards, didn't I? Wherein he will neither die nor live. And there's something about that that just kind of sticks with you. And it's important, this being an early surah, 
the Quran is likely explaining to a pagan audience that death is not an escape from punishment. You are neither dead nor alive in hell, which is a pretty good description of the Christian hell as well. You know, at its core, hell simply means separation from God. And without God, there is no life. But you can't just die to escape eternity either. And the Arabic language being used to express this is quite simple. Neither dead nor alive. This is simple language. No one translates it any other way. This is a blunt way of saying that it is not a state like any that you understand. You can accept or reject God, and the result will be eternal in the afterlife. That is the message, obviously in this Sora, but in so many others. And there just isn't anyone who's going to be able to abrogate that message. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Insha'Allah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.